0: Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk-style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News.
1: Well, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the show. I'm going solo today. Uh, my partner, Jorge Fascinetti, is engaging with uh, the uh physician side of the medical community regarding some of the issues pertaining to his acromegaly that we'll discuss in a future uh, session. <clears throat> it's my pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you for joining in. And whether you're listening live or later to the uh, podcast version of this broadcast, we appreciate your attention. As many of you may know, I'm, I'm a sailor and I'm going through the process of working on you know, getting my uh, Coast Guard license to be a boat captain. And uh, it's a very interesting process. I'm learning an awful lot, uh, much of it very practical and uh, useful. And some of it uh, fits into the category of what I would pretty much call filling your head with nonsense because you're going to have to take an exam now that's the way we often felt in medical school. And I think learning about medicine is the same. Le- learning it about anything is the same, but you never know when that information is going to be useful. And it's one of the um, approaches that we take at Pituitary World News to share information. Uh, it may not be immediately applicable to you, but it's going to be out there on the site and on the website for future usage uh, should you deem that it's necessary uh, and useful. So, always feel free to visit uh, and ask questions, and we can direct you to information. The uh, bits of information that, uh, I don't know, you might find interesting that uh, led to me to start out with a comment was, uh, uh, according to the Coast Guard rules and federal regulations, if you're looking at inland waterways, and we'll use the Mississippi River as an example and its tributaries, uh, there, there was a... A table looking at the priority of boats that have the right-of-way or the, um, you might think of it a right-of-way in layman's persons, but sort of the stand-on vessel in uh, boating terms. Uh, and you know, the, the boat on the on the riverway that has the most priority is a is a warship, uh, a military ship. What really surprised me was a boat that has the second highest priority, and that is a boat carrying U.S. mail. And I thought, what Why do we have boats carrying U.S. mail? We have airplanes, right? So, and mail carriers and things of that nature. But it turns out there are a lot of communities. uh, I'll lift this up. Uh, There are a lot of communities where uh, mail is delivered by a seagoing vessel. Uh, And there's even one post office up uh, near Detroit that's actually an on-the-water post office for accepting and clearing mail. So there you go. If I'm ever sailing in those areas, that will be very useful information. Uh, and I think medicine is much the same. A lot of what we think might be trivia or useless information will, in the right setting, play a role in uh, patient care. <coughs> what I'd like to do today is, uh, well, for the show today, is to talk about two major things. First, we'll talk about uh, indications for pituitary surgery for patients who have pituitary adenomas. And lots of different pituitary diseases that go to surgery. but We'll focus on pituitary adenomas today. Uh, And then uh, after a short little one or two minute break, uh, we'll talk about uh, uh, stress dosing steroids for patients who have central adrenal insufficiency. That's adrenal insufficiency due to hypothalamic or pituitary disorders. Some of what we say will be applicable to those who have primary adrenal insufficiency, having had their adrenal glands out. And if we have time, I might actually address some of the, the additional things that apply to people with primary adrenal insufficiency, because some of you out there may have Cushing's and have had your your adrenal glands removed, so that would be more applicable to you. So um, one, one other thing is my I was out blowing leaves. Who does that in May? But the sycamore trees in front of my house are a little bit drought-stressed and heat-stressed, so they dropped their leaves. I was blowing them, and my allergies really just in a matter of about 15 minutes flared. so I'm a little stuffy today, and I apologize for that. <coughs> Excuse me if I have a coughing or sneezing fit. Uh, Let's talk about the indications for surgery for pituitary adenomas. So generally speaking, um, these are loose uh, definitions. You'll find them in textbooks. Insurance companies may apply them if they're looking at your case to determine whether surgery is indicated. Physicians may or may not use them. Uh, I think they're useful guides to discuss these things with patients, and most patients should understand sort of how we are trying to think as physicians. And, And I felt like if I could talk about this on this show, you might be better able to have a discussion with your treating physician if you're having first surgery or second surgery, for example. Um, Far and away, I think the thing that most people think about is a a tumor benign or malignant. Most pituitary tumors are benign. Uh, Some are malignant. I've probably seen 20, 25 cases of malignancy in the past 15 years. Uh, So they do happen. Sometimes we don't know what tumor is going to be malignant until we follow it long enough. Uh, but certainly, uh, the, we can't tell preoperatively whether you have a malignancy or not. But one of the things that really trips us uh, into saying surgery versus no surgery is the tumor size. And generally speaking, there's an arbitrary cutoff of a tumor of 10 centimeter or more would be a tumor that we would more likely operate on than not. And that's largely because if, if a tumor is that size, it has demonstrated a propensity to grow. <clears throat> and the presumption is then that it might grow further over time so we tend to want to uh, include that as one of the indications for surgery another uh, and i'm going to talk about some related factors in a moment but another indication is if if a patient has a hormone secreting tumor such as acth producing tumor causing cushing's a tsh producing adenoma causing uh, hyperthyroidism or growth hormone secreting tumor causing acromegaly those are clear indications for surgery there would be no no surgeon or insurance company at all that would hold up an operation for that particular uh, indication. We'll talk about prolactinomas separately in a moment. But uh, generally speaking, most patients should have surgery if they have one of those hormone secreting adenomas that I had mentioned. As far as the non-functioning tumors, that's where we revert to the size. And then also whether there are mass effects. So a person who has a tumor, whether it's secreting hormones or not, whether it's a centimeter or not, most of mark rate and then a centimeter. If it's causing mass effects, that would be an indication for surgery. And the principal ones are visual field compromise, where in most cases with pituitary tumors, the tumor is pressing on the visual pathways from below. So you're going to have uh, bilateral uh, temporal visual field cuts and the upper visual fields may be cut before the whole temporal visual field. Temporal being the lateral parts of vision so that you get tunnel vision. Uh, A tumor that erodes the sphenoid sinus and causes nosebleeds, for example. A tumor that um, causes headaches. Uh, Dr. Augie spoke about headaches on our first uh, inaugural radio show, Uh, but we think that if a tumor is definitely related uh, to the headaches the patient's having, we would say this is a reason to consider surgery because it would improve your quality of life. And Of course, another mass effect that should be considered uh, would be uh, hypopituitarism, so any tumor that's affecting pituitary function, uh, either by stealing blood from the normal pituitary or compressing the gland and making it unable to function. If we saw, let's say, a non-functioning tumor that was a centimeter or nine millimeters, but the patient had hypopituitarism, uh, of, and that's a partial or a complete deficiency of one or more anterior pituitary hormones, That would be an indication for surgery uh, to try to resolve pituitary function and stave off any further pituitary loss. Um, And another another reason would be any tumor that's under a centimeter that's invasive, uh, because these invasive tumors have demonstrated a propensity to cross tissue planes and thus should be removed because they're aggressive. I saw, saw a patient this week where that was the case. The tumor was just about 11 millimeters in maximum dimension, but the tumor was already invading the cavernous sinus and invading the bone in the floor of the cella, extending into the sphenoid sinus. And to me, even though it was non-functioning, pituitary functions were normal, this is a tumor that's demonstrated that it has invasive potential and that tumor should be removed. Uh, Hers met the size criteria as well, but since most of the growth was inferiorly into the side, it was figuratively speaking, a million miles away from the visual pathways And uh, in that setting, uh, one could say, why don't we just follow this? But this timber was invasive. And to me, that's a different animal than your regular run-of-the-mill benign pituitary adenoma. Um, I had indicated before that if a timber is greater than a centimeter, it, it sort of illustrates its growth potential or propensity for growth. Um, so we have the fortune of seeing a number of people who've had a tumor diagnosed years ago, and then they're followed with MRI studies because no one bothered to send them to surgery and they have tumor growth. So we know some of these tumors that are large are going to continue to grow, but anyone who's had an MRI demonstration of a, of a tumor increasing in size, even if it's under uh, a centimeter, uh, should probably consider surgery in that setting as well. I've seen that a number of times, tumors that go from three millimeter to seven or eight or nine. To me, that tumor is just gonna keep growing. It's not gonna magically stop below a centimeter. So you just get it out while it's small, it's easier to remove, there's less potential to injure the blood supply to the normal pituitary gland and you can accomplish a complete resection. The smaller the tumor, the, the less invasive the tumor, the greater the likelihood that the surgeon's going to remove that tumor completely now the the special condition of prolactinomas uh fortunately for people with prolactinomas we have dopamine agonist drugs and we can treat with medical therapy to control their tumor in most cases not all but uh by and large most patients we can normalize the prolactin and induce tumor regression curiously some of the smaller tumors don't regress at all and if they do they don't regress much relative to the larger tumors but um a special consideration of patients with prolactinomas is that if a person is young, is going to be required to take medication for life. Why not just do surgery and render them disease-free and and, uh, and move forward uh, with long-term follow-up for evidence of uh, to see if there's any evidence of recurrence, rather than taking lifelong medications. And we know people move around, and people lose jobs, and lose insurance, and things like that. And I think that sometimes when you have a a young person or a person of any age, for that matter. Who you, you have them in, in the office, they're so-called captive, if you will, I hate to use the term, but it's a, one way to think about it, to the medical system and the attention of healthcare providers, they have a tumor, surgery can be justified if you have excellent surgeons uh, and the tumor is small enough, you might as well think about removing that tumor rather than committing patient to lifelong treatment where follow-up might be interrupted, medical insurance might be interrupted, et cetera. So I think that's a that's an important consideration with the with the prolactinomas. In regards to patients who have recurrent tumors, um, there's a lot of data about the the likelihood of successful resection of a recurrent tumor, and also the um, ability to control patients who have hormone secreting tumors when they have uh, second operations. Generally speaking, in our practice, we like to. Uh, recommend surgery for patients who have residual tumors or tumors that uh, were not present but have recurred, if there's a chance we can get most of the tumor out. And I would say most, if we can get 75% of the tumor out, we would prefer to do surgery before we jump straight to radiotherapy. And this is because the tumors that are left behind after a second operation do tend to respond better to radiotherapy or medical therapy if there's a smaller tumor burden or smaller tumor mass. So uh, for residual and recurrent disease, it really depends. Some patients have tumors that are completely in the cavernous sinus. We're not gonna be able to resect much of it at all. We wouldn't necessarily reoperate on those patients, but if there's a significant portion in the cella or we know that we can debulk at least 75% of it, I think it's reasonable to consider surgery versus uh, radiotherapy for those particular patients. Um, the comment I made about medical therapy being much more successful has been shown in acromegaly and I've seen it in hyperprolactinemia as well uh, and certainly Cushing's patients as well. The smaller the tumor burden, the less ACTH secreted, the better control you can get with medical therapy for the disease that's residual after a second operation. So I guess the summation of that Uh, concept is that we don't only operate just to remove the tumor completely. We also operate to debulk to set the patient up for more successful radiotherapy or medical therapy. So the big elephant in the room and the thing that I've put off to the end uh, to discuss uh, is patient preference. Um, Some patients don't meet any of these criteria for surgery. They have a seven millimeter pituitary adenoma. Uh, and, uh, if you look at all the literature and the guidelines regarding treatment of tumors like this, especially when they're incidentally detected that are small with normal hormone function and no mass effects, most of the literature says to follow these tumors with serial MRI studies. There's data from the university of Iowa in the eighties or nineties, suggesting that 7% of patients will have tumor growth per year. That was a short term study. I've seen a number of these people go on to have tumors that do increase in size and head to surgery. So even if the general medical schematic indicates that you really could watch this and not necessarily have surgery, patient preference plays a role. Some people say to me, I don't want to live with a tumor in my head, even though it's not causing me any troubles. I don't want it there. I want it out. Or I do have headaches, and I wonder if my headaches are related to that tumor, so I want it out. And and I think that that's a a valid indication or reason for surgery for the tumors that are certainly greater than 5 to 6 millimeters Those under five millimeters, I do recommend observation just because I'm not sure there's, at that point, if it's under five millimeters and there's no symptoms or side effects of problems, I'm not sure the risks of surgery warrant uh, operating on patients who have a lesion that can sort of be followed for a little bit of time to make sure it's not going to be a troublemaker. So uh, I need to take a little break to get something to drink to smooth my voice out. And when I return, we're going to talk about steroid adjustments for patients who have uh, central adrenal insufficiency and have uh, a stressful medical procedure or an illness. So we'll be right back soon.
0: You are listening to Live Talk. We'll be right back.
1: patients. Um, Let's talk a little bit about central adrenal insufficiency. I refer to it as central, meaning it's the central and anatomical features of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis that have a problem that lead to the adrenal insufficiency in the first place. Central, namely meaning hypothalamic pituitary stalk or pituitary gland. Um, one thing I'll mention is those who get high dose steroids for back problems, uh, skin diseases, inflammatory conditions, rheumatologic diseases, asthma, for example, the steroids that you take can suppress the hypothalamus and the pituitary and the biochemistry can be identical to looking like you have central adrenal insufficiency. So I I ask all of my patients when we're evaluating them to see if they have central adrenal insufficiency, whether they've had steroids and that's an important thing to keep in mind because your doctor might not be smart enough to ask that if they're telling you you have adrenal insufficiency, and you may need to volunteer that information as a patient. That, uh, hey, I got a steroid injection in my knee six weeks ago. Could that be why my cortisol level is low? And then that'll lead down a different pathway than saying you have adrenal insufficiency and need treatment. So, basically, in the setting of central adrenal insufficiency, the pituitary can't tell the adrenal glands to make enough cortisol. It either does it in a dysregulated fashion or it simply doesn't make enough ACTH over a unit of time, say the mass of ACTH secreted in a 24-hour period, to maintain a normal adrenal function. So the adrenals become atrophic, which meaning, means they get small and they get sluggish and they, they're not making steroids because the pituitary gland, the supervisor, is not telling them to make the product, which is cortisol. And uh, this can happen due to a large number of uh, situations in patients with hypothalamic pituitary disease, and I won't belabor those, but the bottom line is the end result is cortisol levels are either low or too low for the body, and we have ways of telling whether or not these uh, uh, systems are intact or not. The gold standard test is what's called an insulin-induced hypoglycemia test, where you give insulin, drop the blood sugar, and that low blood sugar is a stress to the body, the pituitary will make more uh, ACTH and growth hormone, for that matter. <clears throat> and then you can measure the rise in cortisol uh, during the test to see if a patient has a normal response. Another way to test this system or the dynamics of this system is to give a drug uh, called metyrapone, which blocks the production of cortisol. So cortisol levels will fall. The hypothalamus and pituitary are supposed to pick that up make more ACTH and drive the adrenal glands to make more product. But in this case, since you're blocking cortisol production, you measure the, the hormone before cortisol production, uh, before that enzyme block, and that's called 11-deoxycortisol and 11-deoxycorticosterone. So that's another mechanism. Uh, these two tests are different mechanisms. One of them is looking at the response to stress. The second one is looking at the uh, response to a low cortisol. Can the body respond to that challenge? We don't know which one is best, which one's most predict- predictive, probably the insulin induced hypoglycemia is, but that's a difficult test to do. I haven't done one in 20 years and, uh, and I don't plan on it either just because they're risky and they're dangerous. I've done research with this test and, and had a number of people that had profound hypoglycemia and poor responses and older folks can have heart attacks. People with brain lesions can have seizures. And for example, it's. Uh, Uh, some, it's just a difficult, dangerous test. It's expensive. It requires the doctor to be present. We don't do that. And that's where the material test came about. In the 1990s, uh, largely in uh, Israel and other places, they were doing studies trying to see, can we figure out a way to unmask whether or not the adrenal glands fully responsive? Because if you're missing ACTH, it gets sluggish. And so can we pick up that sluggishness the So it was known that we have what's called the traditional ACTH stimulation test where we give 250 micrograms of ACTH, slam the adrenal glands and see if they can produce cortisol. Uh, this is basically trying to see if the adrenal is responsive. If if there's something wrong with the pituitary and the hypothalamus, the, the notion was if the adrenals are sluggish, you might not be able to produce cortisol when you give ACTH. And it turned out that was true. Uh, and then if you give three days of ACTH, you can make the adrenal normal. And that was always the sign that the patient has a sluggish adrenal. Probably if they have pituitary disease, the um, uh, the inference was that the pituitary is not working because the adrenals were sluggish and I was able, able to wake it up after three days. But it turns out that 250 micrograms is a big dose. The entire pituitary content of ACTH is only 400 micrograms. So Giving giving that dose is a real slam to the adrenal glands. It's like a a wake-up call. And it's known that some people with any hormone deficiency have uh, severe deficiency. Other people have a moderate deficiency, and other people have a mild deficiency. And interestingly, some people would have this normal ACTH stimulation test, then go to surgery, and they would crash with adrenal insufficiency. Uh, So the the notion was that even though you have a normal, regular, traditional ACTH stimulation test, some people really have mild adrenal insufficiency and could benefit by some other test to reevaluate to see if they needed to have, uh, you know, steroid coverage for stress or what have you. And, And again, this is using this stimulation of the adrenal as the paradigm that if this test is abnormal, you probably need stress doses instead of using the hypoglycemia or the fallen cortisol as the paradigms to make that decision. Well, back back to the, the folks in Israel, I think this is really where it all started. They developed what they call a low-dose ACTH stimulation test. And this is where you give one microgram of ACTH, not 250, but one microgram, one 250th of the dose. And what they showed is that normal people still have a typical normal response to ACTH. So yeah, I could give a normal person one microgram or 250 and be blinded to which test came first. And I wouldn't be able to tell which test the patient had first or which test was which, which response. But people who have mild and moderate adrenal insufficiency will have an, a normal one, uh, a normal 250 microgram test, but an abnormal one microgram test. So the test is thought to be give the lower dose. You'll find out which adrenals are really sluggish. And if those people have pituitary disease, then you can assume that the pituitary uh, adrenal uh, function is abnormal in those people and they need stress dose replacement. Uh, So when I was at uh, Emory University many years ago, uh, Dr. Leonard Thaler, who now practices uh, north of Miami, uh, who's a tremendous guy, great biostatistician, approached me about doing a a meta-analysis review of the literature and applying some interesting statistical analysis to the papers that had been done looking at the one microgram stimulation test because he he was taking a biostatistician's view of how good is this data and is this useful and we published that paper and showed that this is a very good test so in my practice uh at the same time that i was doing some other studies with insulin-induced hypoglycemia i was correlating morning cortisol levels to insulin-induced hypoglycemia in people with pituitary diseases and and not and, and I showed that if you have a, an AM cortisol, if you have pituitary disease, and that's the key, I'm not sure if this works for people who don't have pituitary disease, but if you have pituitary disease and have an AM cortisol under five, you have adrenal insufficiency. If you're over 12, you would have a normal test on any test that we did. So you don't have adrenal insufficiency. But if you're between five and 12, we need to do further testing to see whether or not you're normal. Now, if I see that all of your other pituitary functions are normal and you're say nine, which is still under the 12, those other tests, my clinical experience over 33 years tells me that your pituitary adrenal function is usually going to be normal. So I wouldn't do the test. But if a patient's missing one or more other pituitary hormone levels and it's between five and 12, I'm going to do the low dose ACTH stimulation test. And I think that really helps me figure out who's going to have adrenal insufficiency and need not only treatment, Uh, on a daily basis, but also stress dosing uh, over time. So this is the approach that I use following people, say, who had radiotherapy for meningioma or pituitary tumor, but were normal, but who are at risk to develop uh, hypopituitarism as a result of the radiotherapy, or people undergoing surgery. This is our approach, which I can am cortisol. Then we look at all the pituitary functions, and we decide whether to do a a low-dose ACTH stimulation test to further evaluate. I don't do the high-dose test anymore for central adrenal insufficiency. I don't do the insulin hypoglycemia, and I certainly don't do the the meterofone test, but I wouldn't fault anybody for doing those other tests to get more information. It's just they're too dangerous to do in my practice. So once we get that diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency, (coughs) um, we proceed with treatment, and usually treatment involves steroid supplementation, My favorite approach and something that I uh, learned from Dr. David Orth and have experienced and tried for the past 25 years is that dexamethasone in a dose of 0.25 to 0.375 milligram taken at bedtime is in almost all patients sufficient steroid supplementation. Some patients need 0.5 a day. Some people need 0.125 a day or 0.25 every other day. Uh, so we start out at 0. 0.25 milligrams a day and figure out whether we have to go up to 0. 0.375 and then maybe to 0. 0.5, or whether we have to go down based on symptoms and signs and sense of well-being. Uh, and most of our patients, probably 80%, take 0. 0.25 milligram a day. Maybe two to three percent will take 0. 0.125 or the 0. 0.25 every other day, and maybe uh, say 15 or less take 0. 0.375 a day and in a small proportion, are going to take 0.5 milligram of dexamethasone a day, and these are steroids at what I consider to be uh, doses of what I consider to be typical physiologic replacement doses. Similar doses for other drugs would be three to four milligrams of prednisone a day, about uh, seven to nine milligrams of methyl a day, uh, probably about 15 to 25 milligrams of hydrocortisone a day. So if you're on one of these other drugs, that sort of is the range of what we would think of steroid equivalency when it comes to steroid supplementation in people with hypopituitarism. And, and I think it's best if someone fails the slow-dose ACTH stimulation test or cortisol is under five, that they take that medication every day. Uh, and that you work with your physician to try to find out what is the most appropriate dose. All of that has to come before you try to decide what to do for stress dosing. Uh, you have to be on stable replacement and, uh, be on an appropriate dose. Now with that said, some people, it's not, they, they're not diagnosed with adrenal insufficiency until they undergo a procedure or get sick or, or whatever. I remember a, a patient a couple of years ago who, uh, got the flu and, uh, he was fine. He's very stoic guy, uh, and, uh, his, uh, partner, um, found him down on the floor and sort of barely surviving uh, when she came home from work one day took him to the hospital and he was found to have adrenal insufficiency they scanned his head and he had a pituitary tumor it was central adrenal insufficiency he was fine with no symptoms whatsoever until he got sick and had the flu and uh, and that precipitated it so these patients start on stress doses first and then go to their replacement doses and believe me there are a lot of people diagnosed with uh, an adrenal crisis who who are later found to have pituitary disease or dysfunction. Some of the clues can be, uh, low blood pressure, a heart rate that doesn't respond to the low blood pressure, a low blood glucose is another common indicator there in hyponatremia, the low blood sugar and the hyponatremia being clues that we try to teach ER physicians that if you see shock or hypotension without a rapid heart rate in response and hypoglycemia, and hyponatremia in a patient, always think pituitary adrenal function and primary adrenal function in that setting. And you might uh, be clued into the the underlying diagnosis to to begin with. Well, let's first talk about what stress is. Um, Stress is any challenge to the homeostatic mechanisms that promote survival. So basically, stress is a challenge to your survival. And there are lots of those. There are things that can lower your blood pressure. There are illnesses that can cause all sorts of problems that bring out a stress response to your your body. Uh, Injuries, accidents, uh, infections, uh, and infections can be bacterial or viral or fungal. Uh, Having a medical procedure such as a gallbladder removed or Um, uh, something that requires anesthesia. Anesthesia itself is sort of the paradigm here because there are studies that show that with general anesthesia, and I think this was a study that that was done that looked at uh, abdominal surgery, the steroid output by the adrenal glands for major abdominal surgery, and this studies from the 80s or 90s, were better than what we were then, I think. But at any rate, the point is that uh, the normal human being will secrete about eight to 10 times the normal amount of cortisol for that type of an abdominal procedure. And most of it is the anesthetic uh, that's sort of requiring the need uh, uh, for the cortisol production uh, and prompting it So, because that anesthesia is a major stress for the body. And then of course, you've got the, the actual surgical wound is a major stress for the body. And then the recovery with pain is another stress for the body. So we learned that we have to if we want our patients with adrenal insufficiency to do well, that they have to have steroids to support this and take what we call stress doses. There have been, I know one study I read in the 1990s, I didn't believe it. I thought it was worthless. That showed that if you do, I think it was a study in people who were had rheumatic joint disease and were on high dose steroids with suppression of the adrenal axis. And they, they decided to take these people to surgery without giving them stress doses. And most people did fine with their joint replacement very risky, would never do it to a patient. I think that a basic principle of medicine is that you first do no harm and there's no harm in giving steroids to someone who either has adrenal insufficiency or a stress, uh, suppress, uh, steroid suppressed, uh, pituitary adrenal axis. Who's, who, ne- who's undergoing a medical stress or an illness or what have you. So those things I mentioned are some of the things that would promote me to, uh, have a patient increase their steroids, um, do you do you have a fever over 100.5 do you have the flu is it coronavirus with a fever how sick are you <clears throat> if you have to miss work because you're sick not because you want to stay home but because you're sick you probably need stress doses if you're going to have a medical procedure probably so colonoscopy yes a little bit uh root canal probably a filling no uh, so any any of these challenges or stresses need need steroids and the rationale behind it is that whenever you have the, all of the stress hormones kicking in together, the catecholamines from the nervous system, the adrenal gland and prolactin and, and all sorts of things. And when you have a bacterial infection or viral infection, uh, your, your immune system's responding and it's releasing a bunch of junk. The immune system is cytokines and lymphokines that basically are going to cause a, uh, the fever in one place but also a low blood pressure. And one of the good things that steroids do, especially in infections, is that they block the production of these toxins, if you will, released by your immune system and, and limit the low blood pressure that you get. Or if you've got a low blood pressure, it blocks the toxins, the ones that have already been secreted or cleared by the system. So it helps keep your blood pressure up. So the bottom line is the immune system is set to respond aggressively to an infection, regardless of the type of infection. And the immune system is set to respond uh, and, and the other stress systems are set to respond to a challenge to the physiology of the human being, whether it be surgery, anesthesia, or what have you. And if you don't give yourself extra steroids, you end up getting sick because of your body's response to that, uh, say, infection or injury or illness from tissue damage or whatever that's going on. And that's why you have to take extra steroids to limit your body's aggressive response to whatever's going on, because we're set to sort of attack and kill bugs that invade our system. And if we don't tamper that down, we're going to get even sicker as a consequence of the junk that the immune system releases to try to kill those uh, foreign invaders. This is, by by the way, sort of parenthetically, this is what's going on, in my opinion, with most people who do poorly with coronavirus. Uh, They get what's called a cytokine storm. And there are people who get cytokine storm who tend not to have natural killer cell ability with their T cells. They help fight viruses and things like that. So these cells keep trying to kill the virus, kill the virus, kill the virus. They can't do it. So they release more of this junk into the bloodstream, which causes more immune cells to come and try to help. And then they get all these very high levels of cytokines, which cause blood clots, uh, infiltration in the lungs, fluid leakage, and all sorts of things. And I think that's one of the reasons that some people die from coronavirus is they may have a genetic predisposition to do so. Uh, And parenthetically, that's why you should all get your vaccines because you don't know if you're going to be one of those people or not. But at any rate, uh, we're trying to prevent some of this same stuff from happening in in people with adrenal insufficiency when they get sick or have a major medical procedure. And uh, that's why this is important. I'm going to talk about the doses to employ to do this later. What I want to talk about is when not to take extra steroids because that's a problem too. Um, You know, I have patients that say, I didn't feel good today. I had an argument with my daughter, so I decided to take extra steroids and I didn't feel any better the next day, so I decided to do it again. And before you know it, people have been taking extra steroids for weeks or months and they've even upregulated the dose to where instead of taking two to three times they're taking five times, and now they're starting to get Cushingoid symptoms and signs. Minor psychological stress is not, uh, or, or an argument at work is not a reason to take extra steroids for probably 99% of people. I would have to say that I've seen occasional person who probably needed it when they took it. But generally speaking, the psychological stress that would require it would be losing a job, death of a partner, spouse, or child, or close other close family member, uh, a divorce, something like that. Those are the major big hitter psychological stressors where we as human beings have uh, to put our coping mechanisms together and put everything else aside and focus on it. That's the kind of thing where if you feel stressed out, you should take extra steroids. Now, some people say they feel sick or they have a little bit of nausea or vomiting and they just take extra steroids. And that's fine because they maybe didn't absorb their steroids well that day or the night before and need to take an extra dose. Uh, or m- maybe in those patients they do better as some of my patients have helped me understand that those are symptoms and signs if it's chronic that maybe they need to switch from 0.25 to 0.375 or from 0.375 to 0.5. Uh, so those, are the, those symptoms are different than sort of stress doses is what I think. I think that's main, mainly what I would refer to, the, to the, in the realm of dose titration where we're trying to find the right dose for the particular person. Uh, but uh, I, I caution you to be careful taking extra steroids for minor things, or, you know, I'm just, I'm mad at you today, I'm going to take extra steroids. That can lead to cushion weight symptoms and signs, and it can also lead to dependency on higher doses. I, I remember I had one patient who who said, yeah, if I don't feel good in the morning, <coughs> I take extra steroids. And I realized just taking extra steroids made me feel better. And then I started stress dosing if I didn't feel well, but I realized I felt better He was doing this vicious cycle where he was taking enough steroids for eight people. In the end, when he finally came to me and said, I need help, I've got diabetes and high blood pressure and my feet are swollen and I've gained 50 pounds. Why did this happen to me? And it was because he was self-medicating and getting in this spiral uh, upwards on his dosage and now was crossing the line and having side effects. And the, the important thing to remember is that steroids are like a double-edged sword. It's got an edge that's going to help you fight off what's bad, but it can also hurt you uh, if that sword gets knocked back into your face. You can get cut by it. So there's what we call a narrow therapeutic window for replacement doses of steroids. Uh, too little is not good. the The right amount is a very small window or range, and too much is not good. So you can easily cross over into too little or too much. So you have to work with your physician to figure out what your dose is and also how to sort of manage your stress doses. Now, when it comes to dosing, <coughs> regardless of which steroid you're on, I usually think of uh, a minor stress dose as doubling the dose. So if you're gonna have a root canal or a colonoscopy or something like that, uh, I would say double your dose the night before if you're on dexamethasone or the, the morning of, if they're letting you take my mouth, um, uh, the, the morning of a procedure. Um, this is another reason dexamethasone is good because if you're having a colonoscopy at 10 and they don't want you to have anything for breakfast, the steroid you take, the dexamethasone dose you take the night before is your do- steroid dose for all the next day. So if you're NPO, meaning nothing by mouth that morning, that's no big deal because uh, you're going to be uh, covered with the steroid anyway. So you just double up on your dexamethasone the night before those procedures If you have hydrocortisone, you have to have your doctor's permission to take it with a sip of water to take double or any other steroid the same. So when people are at home with the flu or coronavirus or whatever, if they're moderately sick, um, meaning not sick enough to go to the hospital or, or the emergency room or go to the doctor's office to say, what do we do? Do I have to go into the hospital? those patients should probably triple their dose of steroids. We don't recommend tripling, more than tripling uh, as an outpatient. If you need more than three times your daily dose, you probably need to be hospitalized. Um, And for the the length of of therapy depends on what's going on. You know, if you injured your leg and went to the emergency room, you had a fractured bone and got a cast and you're at home, you're probably going to double it for three days, four days until your pain's better. Uh, but after that, or triplet, and then maybe double it for two days and then go back to your usual dose. Um, if you're sick with coronavirus, you know, you're sick for 10 days or, or the influenza virus, you're probably going to take triple for the first three days and then double for the rest of the illness. No more than you shouldn't be taking extra steroids for more than two weeks for an illness like that without seeking medical attention. Um, other sorts of things, <clears throat> you know, two to three times is, is safe for, for a few days uh, and certainly no more than twice for two weeks uh, if you're managing at home. And by the way, at Pituitary World News, early in the course of our uh, putting information out there online, we did a, a handout for patients who have uh, uh, adrenal insufficiency on how to adjust their steroids, and you could refer to that. And the National Adrenal Diseases Foundation has a lot of information as well that uh, I think can be particularly helpful. People trying to figure out how to adjust their steroid medications. One of the most important things I can say today is that if you cannot keep your medicines down, if you have definite adrenal insufficiency and you can't keep your medicines down for one reason or another, let's say you have a gastroenteritis or food poisoning or whatever, you must go to the hospital. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There is no, let me see how I do tomorrow. You have to go to the hospital then. I have seen a couple of people and heard of others uh, who thought they would be able to weather the night and go to the doctor the next morning. And they, they were, you know, carried off by the paramedics to the emergency room, basically deceased six to eight hours later. So don't hesitate. Uh, ER visits are expensive, but it's, it's it may be worth your life to, to go. Um, I, I do have, uh, one friend who has adrenal insufficiency and she, um, used to, her, her husband was a doctor and he used to put in IVs and give her IV steroids. So probably none of you have that ability to do so. And it's probably best to just go to the hospital, uh, if you can't keep your medicine down and you're at risk to get dehydrated or go into shock. So don't, don't, uh, roll the dice there. Just get straight if you throw your pills up once, don't think maybe I'll take them now and I'll be able to tolerate them for later. Just go to the hospital, a twenty-four hour stay in the hospital to get them by vein and to get some fluids is far better than than uh, um, the alternative, uh, which I sadly have seen in a number of patients. And uh, another thing uh, is don't miss your don't miss your daily medicines. You Have to take your pills. If you miss your daily medicines and then You have an event that's going to lead to the need for stress doses you're behind the game already so you have to have your daily steroids on board it's like an it's like the electricity for your body or or an operating system for your computer whatever it has to be there in the background running uh, in the event that you get sick or have a car accident or need an emergent surgical procedure or get the get gastroenteritis or food poisoning so always take your medicine if you can't keep it down go straight to the hospital and get treated. Don't even bother to call your doctor, just go to the hospital. Um, And, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is that your your healthcare team may not really have a clue how to do stress dosteroids steroids when you get to the hospital. We are called all the time, uh, most of the time in advance, of someone going to have surgery who has adrenal insufficiency to provide recommendations to the physicians or anesthesia about what to do. Fortunately, a lot of times they know what to do. But in many cases, the treating physicians don't have a clue. And I've had patients tell me that they had to direct the healthcare team what to do with their steroids. And in one case, a, 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 a person's partner and or spouse had to do the same. So, you know, your your significant other, whoever might be going to the emergency room with you needs to be able to know what to tell the, the healthcare professionals when you go. And one thing to remember that's going to save lives if, if your local small hospital doesn't know what to do is hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams IV every eight hours. If you can have major abdominal surgery, 100 milligrams IV every eight hours. But if you tell the paramedics when they pick you up at your house or the ER people when you get there, give me hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams IV now, that buys at least eight hours for people to sort of decide what to do and to learn your history and figure out what to do. Another thing is get a medical alert bracelet that says adrenal insufficiency, steroid dependent, uh, and uh, maybe put that on a piece of tape on the back of your identification card, whether it be your driver's license or some other card as well, so that a first responder could uh, potentially uh, see that uh, if they don't have an opportunity to take a history from you because you can't give a history due to being so sick. Uh, but uh, keep those things in mind and just remember that number of 50 milligrams every eight hours. Ask your partner or your children or your best friend or who might be going with you to the hospital to know 50 milligrams IV every eight hours, because you, you do have to have that safety net in case the team that sees you at the hospital cannot get in touch with your treating physician Maybe your treating physician doesn't know these things, educate them, uh, during visits, just bring a topic up. Hey, can we talk about my adrenal insufficiency? This is my understanding of what I should do. I just wanted to make sure that you're aware of these things and on board. And if not, then maybe I've educated you and taught you something that might apply to your other, other patients. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure with those things that I've said that I've left something out and, and some of you out there, uh, have uh, the illness and have probably learned and are teaching me and your physicians uh, about how your bodies best respond. And and, uh, I'm sure that most of you have had to take extra steroids one form or another, and you may agree or disagree with what I've said. But these are the things that I usually teach my patients based on the things that I have learned, not only from my professors, but more so from my patients in the art of the practice of medicine. Uh, And uh, we do welcome you to sort of share on our uh, pages or on Facebook what's worked for you so that other people can learn about what's worked for you because if something hasn't worked for them, it might work for them to understand. So in this day and age, share information and uh, remember what I'd said starting out that some of this information may seem uh, superfluous or not applicable, but you never know when you're going to need to know this stuff. So uh, it's best to learn it share it with people who might be able to to use it or need to know it on your behalf and uh, try your best to stay very well as i said at the start of the program i'm flying solo today as uh, jorge is not here and i don't know if anybody's trying to call in or not i have no way to know how to do that because that's his part of this uh, radio show Uh, so with that said i'd like to uh, conclude and say thanks for listening we hope you'll join us uh, every week or thereabouts. We plan to do a show every week, uh, and uh, again, post these things as a podcast later on. Uh, and uh, feel free to write us and suggest topics. We have a list of innumerable things to cover, but we want to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our listeners. So, uh, be don't be uh, bashful. Tell us what you'd like to talk about, and. Uh, in future shows when we'll both be here and maybe have this figured out, feel free to uh, call in. We want this to be a talk radio show where we're talking with you and hearing about your uh, experiences and the things that you have to say, because everybody's interested in learning uh, um, from people who are living this uh, illness on a daily basis. Uh, So once again, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.